On this episode of To Think Minimum, we are pleased to host three experts in digital payments from the Libra Association and Kiva, a nonprofit organization dedicated to financial inclusion for the world's most vulnerable populations. Christian Catalini is chief economist of the Libra Association, on leave from MIT, and a faculty research fellow at NBER. Dante Desparte is vice chair and head of policy and communications at the Libra Association, and currently serves as an appointee on the FEMA National Advisory Council. Matthew Davey is the chief strategy officer at Kiva, where he oversees corporate strategy, emerging tech development, and policy and regulatory engagements. And he's also a board member of the Libra Association. Thanks, Christian, Dante, and Matthew for coming on the program. It's good to speak to you today. I thought I'd start with a somewhat challenging question, and then we can discuss other topics related to open payment systems and financial inclusion. Why don't we use digital payments broadly today? What's holding back innovation in payments? So hi, Sarah. This is uh, Dante. I'm happy to start. It's a great question. I think part of what is making this broadening the base of innovation for payments and what I call breaking down the barriers of the walled gardens around the world is one, we have not yet had technologies that will allow us to scale the perimeter of payments and basic financial access, while at the same time, not sacrificing the type of security and protections we have come to expect of mature financial systems. So so there has been, up until now, a technological deficit. Um, This is part of the reason why so many blockchain adherents and cryptocurrency adherents originally started as challengers to the traditional financial system because it was all about democratizing access to payments, value, money, and these concepts that underpin that around self-sovereignty, among others. I think that's challenge one. Challenge two is, of course, in many respects, the world's regulatory frameworks have failed to keep pace with enabling broad-based innovation and enabling the types of coalitions that are now forming around building infrastructure that would support payments at scale and support cross-border use cases. Those would be the two areas that I would identify as the inhibitors for why we haven't yet seen much more innovation in this domain yet. Yeah, and I think, you know, from an economics perspective, there's the additional challenge that the current infrastructure is not really interoperable. And so what you see is a replication of siloed solutions that don't typically uh, transact with each other. And from a consumer and merchant experience, that has led to less competition. So one of the key goals of Libra is really to develop something that looks a lot more like an open technology standard, like those that we use every day on the internet. And that allows a number of different entities to work with each other under the same protocols and standards and really lower switching costs and really the ability for anyone to transition, whether they're a consumer or a merchant, between different solutions over time. We hope that by lowering barriers to entry, we can also introduce more competition in the services and eventually enable a range of new products and services that don't exist today around payments, mostly because of the lack of competition. And this is Matthew, I can come in and just echoing everything that Dante and Christian just said and just add, as you get down to the developing world and underbanked and unbanked populations, and especially in the developing world, you know, using digital payments, there wasn't digital access 10 years ago, and it's coming very rapidly and penetrating the developing world. And one of the biggest things that's left is making it so it is possible, economically viable, actually, for financial service providers to move down to these populations. That in the developed world, it might be expensive, it might be cumbersome, it might be non-interoperable. In the developing world, it is a losing proposition to try to open savings accounts for the way business is done now. And so having an evolution of that, and Dante talked about the regulatory side a little bit, I know we'll get into that more. 
but making it so it can be faster and cheaper and more secure to provide these services at the unbanked is what will allow digital. They're just going to leapfrog analog banking to go straight to digital banking. So in developing countries, then, is the issue that this overcomes bad institutions, existing bad institutions in developing countries? I mean, there's sort of already, there is mobile banking in developing countries more so than here. How does this overcome whatever barriers they currently face? This is Matthew. I'll continue since we're, we're going developing world here and kind of where I live. Not physically, but with my work life. So I wouldn't call bad institutions. You can always cherry pick and find individual institutions that are good, bad, or anywhere in between. I would say broadly, it's really difficult. You know, microfinance institutions charge anywhere from 30 to 100% plus APR. And still many of them don't survive because it's not cost effective. The cost of doing business is very expensive because these tools and infrastructure and this competition is not there. So I think creating an enabling environment that digital can bring where you can almost instantly have competition will push the price to the floor. And the price won't go to where it is in the developed world. It will still be more expensive to bank there. But again, to use the lending example from microfinance institutions, digitization of that entire supply chain of money could possibly, we've run some analyses, we think could push those interest rates from 30 to 100% down to somewhere between 12 and 15%. And that's a huge, you know, even going from 30 to 12%, that's a over 50% decrease. And you know, from 100% plus to 12 is, is life-changing. You can suddenly use those products for a lot more things. 100% APR product, you can't use that to go to school. You can't use that to buy a car. You can't use that to buy a house. Position from the groups that currently charge those high, those usurious rates? If we can decrease their cost of doing business, again, increase their margins, they can afford to compete and lower the price. I think new entrants, I think as digitization happens, I hope there are new entrants around the world in the developed and the developing world. And I hope they all come with the regulatory compliance and the scrutiny we're seeing going over innovation. I hope that innovation on the regulatory side continues to accelerate and move faster because it's necessary. But again, we could also then push all of that compliance and consumer protection down into that market where it doesn't exist broadly today. So this is Kristen. You know, if we start even from something as simple as a cross-border remittance, it is true that, you know, when you look at prices and kind of market concentration on the other end, those markups tend to be substantially higher where you don't have competition, where you do have exclusivity arrangements on the last mile. So one of the first things that Libra can do is to enable more forms of access for local entrepreneurs, including startups and, and businesses that do want to interface with a global network of this type and, and allow for cheaper, more efficient, and also safer on and off ramps. There's often a belief that you know, remittances are expensive because of AML, CFT, compliance costs more generally. And this is another area where the technology can drastically improve how a lot of that is done. So with no compromise in the safety standards, and in fact, we believe that Libra over time will be not only meeting those standards, but exceeding them. What you can actually do is now allow for more choice. Because one of the reasons why remittances are very expensive is that, that again, the consumers on the receiving end often do not have a lot of choice unless they're you know, digitally savvy and maybe they're using an online service or some other solution. You know, the kiosk or the agent network is still one that is often tied to the old cost structures. Even when it comes to mobile money, we see wide it originating places where it has worked really well. In other areas, it has not. And this is an opportunity to fix that. So the digital payment stack, presumably a lot of the Visa network and credit cards and banking is digital right now. I mean, it's shifted over from paper to databases. What makes an open protocol like Libra a step forward from what we have now? 
I'm happy to start that answer. This is Dante again. I think there are a couple of areas of distinction. One of them Christian already mentioned before, which is the general lack of interoperability between even existing highly efficient payment systems. So I'm from Puerto Rico originally, and I have family on the island. And a basic transaction from continental United States to the island of Puerto Rico, if you wanted to arrive fast, it costs $30 for the money to arrive within a reasonable time frame of a week. And part of the argument is that there's lack of interoperability in how those types of banking systems might be speaking to each other. So even in an environment that would have an embarrassment of riches by, by comparative measures to the developing world, you still have a lack of interoperability between payment systems. And so I don't see the Libra system as necessarily being directly competitive or disruptive to existing systems. And if anything, I think part of what we're trying to achieve is to extend the perimeter of payments by enabling a basic internet-connected mobile device to become a regulated payment endpoint. It upends the model and puts it on its head, where most payment systems today, even companies that are part of the same holding company structure, they can't make payments within one provider or another. But the Libra system, as a user-directed open payment standard, is enabling people to have a common messaging platform for the exchange of value that's user-directed and and peer-directed. I think that's one key breakthrough. The other key breakthrough is it's an open source technology. At the long range, we also want to promote a lot of vigorous competition, business model innovation, and use cases for this, such that you could enable responsible financial services innovation to also thrive on this type of system. As an aside, one thing that you said that surprised me was that it was difficult even to to transfer money to Puerto Rico. And if you would expect there to be one place where there wouldn't be many barriers or where where systems would work together would be between the the mainland and and Puerto Rico. And then I was thinking, well, what about platforms like Zelle or Zelle? I don't know how to pronounce it. And then sure enough, I Googled it and it doesn't work there. What is the reason for that? Why are these barriers? And then why would a, a platform like Libra be able to overcome them? One, the barriers exist for a variety of complex evolutionary reasons. I, I wouldn't want to sit here and explain that you know these things aren't uh, just a function of how systems tend to ossify, right? That you know the banking system looks very much like the telephone and the, the mobile telephony systems 50 years ago, right? And, and that there's very little optionality. And the only people who had access to the phone calls or reliable telephony were within reach of physical infrastructure. So I also think there's a dimension there. That's certainly not the case when it comes to Puerto Rico. I think part of it is just the presumption that the closer you get to the equator and the the further south you go from the equator, the higher risk you are generating, and therefore you have a higher cost of risk and de-risking. Sadly, the Caribbean basin, including the territory of Puerto Rico, are plagued by these sort of arcane rules that have no place in the modern system. The inherent aspect of our design, the blockchain that we're using as a public blockchain, the fact that the Libra Association will stand up a financial intelligence function and a compliance function and will abide by prevailing requirements around anti-money laundering and illicit finance and so on, means that we're able to say to the world, financial inclusion and compliance and risk management are not trade-offs. The three things can move in lockstep. I know this is a big priority that uh, Matthew and others have been thinking about. And now we have a technology stack at our hands uh, that can facilitate that. Yeah. And, and if I can just come on to add on that perceived risk, it's, it's a really interesting point. Kiva has globally a 97% repayment rate for unbanked customers. So customers outside the perimeter. And of that, one of that 3% is actually institutional default, not consumer default. So the actual consumer default in Kiva's 15 years and billion and a half lending in 92 countries to underbanked customers is better than US credit card debt, just from a pure default rate basis. 
So this is a pure systemic perceived risk problem layered on top with it is much more difficult to serve these populations. And again, that's what leads to when Dante talks about as you get close to the equator and going south, these problems get worse and worse and worse. For anti-fraud or, I mean, default, so there are two kinds of risk, I guess. It's like that people can't pay back, honestly. And then the second is like there's active fraud happening. My understanding of payment systems is that half or more of all the costs are about anti-fraud efforts. Is Libra Association or is the blockchain technologically able to overcome like fraud? I'll come on and I'm sure Christian and Dante have even more intelligent stuff to say, but but also you could look at the recent, there was the exploit where there were some Twitter hacks and then Bitcoin started flowing around. And so here's Bitcoin that has no actual real identity behind it. The traceability of where those funds went, it was amazing how quickly and how fast firms were able to trace and map where the money went to try to put a box around it and catch it. And if that was something non-digital, if that had converted to cash or some other liquid physical asset, that was gone. I think when you add what Libra is trying to do in terms of bringing a permission network, bringing verifiable identity into the system, conforming with AML CFT rules, that I would expect it to operate. And again, we're still waiting for all the regulatory guidance, and this will be a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, how it's rolled out. I would expect this to be able to be greatly superior to existing systems from a traceability of funds perspective. And maybe I'll leave it to my colleagues to have much better detail on that. The only thing I would add to Matthew's excellent point is obviously. We're seeking, I think, a permissioned path, right? So Libra as a project is asking for permission rather than forgiveness. Unlike, you know, many, many technology efforts in the past where you regulate ex post facto, we're clearly trying to launch a payment system that is regulated, that abides by a range of different standards. But on the score of protecting the financial system, to Matthew's point, blockchain-based payment systems, even ones without the type of structure we're putting in place offer a lot of security when it comes to tracking and tracing capabilities that the counterpart of traditional fiat currencies do not offer. That has to be a part of the design principle here to ensure, again, extending the perimeter of payments and and being able to support these types of cross-border use cases is done in a manner consistent with existing regulations. And just to add to that, you know, I think the, the upside and the potential of the technology in the long run is also the intersection of things that the public sector may care about Going back to the recent COVID experience, I think a number of countries struggled with simple things like cash transfers. And so when you put that into kind of an international perspective, challenges were, you know, in the U.S., people had to wait for multiple weeks for their checks to arrive, the stimulus package. That's problematic in, in, in emerging economies. And so a network of this type could also enable simple things like that, where you can take advantage of the digital technology for something that you know, enables a cash transfer at a lower cost with better compliance and in regions that are currently underserved. So these are all areas that we think have potential in the long run and lower the cost of really you know, having a precise audit trail and delivering aid or other uh, type of support at the right time in the right place. So I started my career at the World Bank, and at the time I worked on competition and uh, telecommunications competition, and that was when mobile companies were just beginning to set up, and of course they're all mostly indigenous um, local wireless companies. And you know, some of what you said reminded me of that, that at the time, most of the big Western companies ignored much of um, the developing world because they thought, and people at the World Bank thought, and there was just general thought that low-income people, there was just be no demand for mobile phones among them. And of course, you know, that turned out to be just incredibly wrong. And that sounds similar to what you're saying with the very low default rate in, in Kiva. But one of the things that helped mobile phones succeed as separate from the state-owned incumbents 
was that everyone thought that this, there would be no demand. And so they just kind of allowed these firms to enter and the incumbents didn't block them. But you're taking a different path and you're telling everybody, hey, we're coming. Are you worried that everyone who has something to lose is going to try to stop you? I'll come in from the Kiva perspective for the developing world, bringing the technology and bringing the consumer protection and the regulatory compliance, I would call equally important. And so I'm very happy. And one of the reasons we're very happy to do this long game with Libra and to go through with these regulators asking permission, not asking forgiveness later, is that the ability to bring that compliance, a lot of people think of it as a burden, but there's a lot of benefits that those of us who think of it as a burden don't realize all the benefits of that consumer protection that comes with it. And so does it make it a longer term? Yes. Can it make it so that it seems like compliance and innovation are at odds? Yes, but they're not. It's just doing it this way will take longer and we'll get it done more right so that it's better that we, in my opinion, reach vulnerable populations with new products and services. We do it right, not that we do it fast. So I have a money question about Libra. So Libra is kind of a global open standard. How much of it will involve you know, exchanging currencies. Is that something that happens at a certain point in the stack? I think part of the concern of regulators is, you know, there's a reason why there are different silos in the financial system, and it's so complicated. How does it all fit into one stack? Yes, let me take uh, maybe a, a step back. So, you know, in White Paper 2, we laid out a vision where you know, we see Libra eventually integrating with public sector efforts, whether it's wholesale, central bank digital currencies, or synthetic CBDCs. But in general, we want to build a network that the public sector can interface with. And as these new assets become more digital, I mean, they're already somewhat digital, but they're definitely not programmable or interoperable across each other to the extent that, you know, you want to enable, for example, a cross-border payment in, in many of these cases. The evolution is not one for Libra to keep operating a Libra reserve, maintaining you know, the short-term treasuries and, and, and cash to back those coins, but to operate and, and essentially link with the public sector. You know, what we want to enable is a vision that gives maximum flexibilities for central banks around the world. You know, they want the Libra network to, to interoperate with their own rails, whether it's upgrades to RTGS systems or to any other existing payment infrastructure. And for that vision to be materialized, one step would be supporting more of the single currency stable coins over time. Of course, that's something that can only happen in collaboration with the public sector. And so the vision, again, that we laid out is one where we are open to collaboration and to really identifying on the Libra side, what do we need to build? so that this network can interface with the different types of arrangements that I think we'll see emerge in different regions of the globe. We will be starting with a small subset of single currency stablecoins. And in those markets, you can already envision a number of domestic use cases like payments to merchants and, and other digital payments kind of being supported on day one. But where you do not have a single currency stablecoin, then the domestic use cases, of course, are not going to be really relevant. And the main use of the network will be for sending money cross-border, whether it's a remittance or some other type of payment. As you know, we've retained this concept of a multi-currency LBR, which is essentially, you know, similar to the SDR, is essentially aggregating in fixed nominal weights the constituent single currency stablecoins, mostly because we believe that could play a role in, in some of these cross-border payments as a low volatility neutral currency that can be used when sending money abroad, especially to a country that does not have a single currency stablecoin on the network yet. Now, of course, what needs to happen for the network to be useful is in those regions, there needs to be good cash in and cash out options so that 
you know, the receiver can then convert that and spend that on local goods and services. And so this is something that will take time. And I think as Matthew was mentioning before, the cost will be higher at first. And over time, we hope through competition and the integration with multiple players, those costs will come down. To your broader question about kind of, you know, Libra and how it plays probably also within the kind of macroprudential policy concerns, the vision, again, is one to complement and extend the functionality of fiat, not to compete with monetary policy. That's, you know, this the remit of the public sector. And under the new design, of course, you know, it's important to remember that all the on and off ramps, all the vast so virtual asset service providers like wallets and exchanges operating in a region will have to comply with, with local rules. So insofar as there are capital controls or any sort of foreign exchange controls restrictions, those would apply to the Libra network. Of course, you know, we hope to be a network that can support the good transfers like remittances without kind of interfering with, you know, concerns around currency substitution and the like. And that will require really working together with the public sector and identifying how do we design that interface between Libra and local payment system so that we can still allow for the good inflows and, and, and reduce worries about, you know, capital outflows or the use of any one of the single currency stablecoins. Take, for example, the Libra dollar as a substitute for the local currency. When we first started hearing about Libra, it was connected very strongly with Facebook, but that doesn't seem to be true anymore, right? I mean, Facebook now has Facebook Financial instead. What happened and has that changed the direction of Libra? Yeah, so I'm happy to um, start the answer there. And I think Matthew, as a board member of the association, can also comment. Uh, I think, one, Facebook is, of course, an important member uh, through its wallet provider, Novi, uh, is an important member of the association. The project, the technology was initially incubated at Facebook. And over time, the goal of building a separate and independent institution that was a member-driven institution of the Libra Association has been what we have been working towards since this was originally announced in June of uh, 2019. And I think, you know, along the way, this has been really an interesting set of both public and private dialogues about the direction of travel on the types of monetary policy issues that Christian highlighted and the need for those to remain very much within the public domain, the opportunity for public-private collaboration, that we live in a world with 1.7 billion people unbanked and nearly an equal number who are underbanked. And yet among that set of issues, we have yet to form as a world very serious coalitions who could start attacking that. And I think, you know, at the core of the Libra mission is to really fundamentally build shared services, for lack of a better term, a digital commons that could remove the barriers and the excuses that have precluded people from entering the financial system. And this is why, you know, we take great pride in the type of diversification in the Libra Association's membership. You have social impact partners like Kiva and Women's World Banking, Mercy Corps, uh, among others. Heifer International was recently announced this year as a new member. You have venture capital partners who are catalyzing investments in the ecosystem and who obviously have downstream ambitions of potentially developing the future fintechs that might be leveraging these types of systems. You have marketplace providers, and then you have wallet providers and others who are trying to normalize this ecosystem. So, you know, not only are we asking for permission, not only are we trying to build a very independent organization with a governance model that is enduring. We're trying to build enduring technology, but we're also trying to do it in as close to a harmonized way with public priorities. And so I think the the very early narrative was mostly focused on the messenger, Facebook as the messenger of bringing this project to the world, rather than the message, which is that we have some really intractable social problems and financial exclusion problems 
that we're simply not doing nearly enough to address. Dante said basically everything. I'll, I'll just tack on, like when you say it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. You know, we announced it in June. It was incubated at Facebook. In October, we actually formed the association in Geneva with 20 some odd members. And at that point, Facebook only had one vote through Novi as one of the members, as a general member. And it was elected, David was elected as one of five board members. And so since that date, this has actually been operating and gaining its independence as it staffs up, as we get Christian on as our chief economist. Dante's been on longer than that, which is great. As we staff it up, I think it becomes apparent to more that it's independent, but the governance has been independent for almost a year now. And I do think you'll see that over time, that Facebook is a very important stakeholder, very important to help incubating this and helping bring all of the other stakeholders together. But this is truly a collaborative mission of all of us going out, trying to envision this future of fintech and how it can be more inclusive. And that's why you can have folks like all the social impact partners on board is because of that alignment towards what this could actually provide downstream. Yeah, and, and building on that, again, for the project to succeed, you need many players on the same ecosystem. So it's going to be important to have multiple wallets, to have multiple merchants, to have multiple payment service providers. Of course, you know the social impact advisory board and, and, and NGO partners that are really playing the leading role of shaping up the financial inclusion plans of the association, all of these pieces have to come together so that you know any entity that is not a member can look at the project and say, rather than creating my own silent solution, I'd rather interoperate with it and kind of join this broader ecosystem. A question that's a little bit broader to you, Christian, you're an academic also. What's the difference between how what you see in the real world with uh, blockchain and payment systems versus the, the research that's been done on it. Are they you know, pretty well connected or do you find that the real world is not as well represented in modeling as it should be? Are, are things missing from the academic discussion of, of blockchain and payments? I will have to be very careful now I answer <laughs> this one to make sure all my academic friends are, are not offended. When I started studying cryptocurrencies, this was in 2013 when we did the MIT Bitcoin experiment. The idea was always to understand, you know, from an economics perspective, this is a technology that clearly, you know, around blockchain cryptocurrencies has very high potential to democratize access to the financial services systems and to enable an array of new products and services that will be beneficial to society, especially when we think about financial inclusion and you know, segments that are completely excluded because of the cost structure and because of how the system is designed today from equal access. And I think, you know, when, when I started working on this project towards the beginning of 2018, I was growing increasingly frustrated with the fact that there was a lot of work and experimentation. But when you looked at problems actually being solved, there wasn't as much progress in terms of solutions that were delivering on that promise. I think there's, as always, really important work being done by academics from an array of kind of fields of economics and, and related areas of discipline. What often happens is that academic research, because of also the incentive systems, rewards certain type of work, certain types of paper. And there's often a disconnect between some of the theoretical pieces or some of even the applied pieces and, and the phenomena. And that was something that in, in my research, I always felt was really important to, to be close to the phenomena. And so my hope is that maybe even also through efforts like Libra, and I think we're seeing some, some of this already happening around CBDCs, we did create a resurgence in interest in, in, in upgrading payment systems, uh, things that were considered, I think, to very boring, but are actually quite important to society. And so my hope is that over time, there will be more applied work that actually reflects what the technology can and cannot do. 
And that will require actually a lot of collaboration and interactions between economists, for example, but also computer scientists, legal experts, because what makes this field fascinating is that you, you need multiple areas of expertise. And, and I think a project like Vibra is, is an example of that. You can't innovate in this sector without bringing you know, a clever engineer that has been thinking about protocol level design, like Dahlia, who is the lead developer of the Libra Association, without you know, some economic thinking, without the legal constraints and, and kind of boundaries of how to really design new products and services. And of course, then you know, the, the expertise of people like Matthew that actually understand what the real problems are from a financial inclusion perspective. That's been the most fascinating part of my journey you know, on leave from MIT has been learning about all these other pieces and, and trying to kind of fit them together with, with these teams. There are a lot of other projects happening in this space. It seems like kind of a wild west. And I think a lot of regulators are skeptical because some competing projects aren't asking permission or just going forward and you see these you know, big blowups or fraud etc. Does Libra Association have a point of view about other projects or is it more like keep your head down and build and and survive <laughs> and then let everyone else fail and build what you need to build? What do you think of all the other projects out there? Yeah. So like Christian, you know, I too have been a careful student of crypto developments and blockchain and the ICO bubble and, and how many regulators and others, their first experience with this asset class might have been through a random ransomware attack, which is a greater indictment on cybersecurity than it is an indictment on the payment mechanism. And I see this as, in some respects, an all-ships rising moment for the asset class because the conversation has now entered the main stage. We have had three public hearings in the United States where the case for financial inclusion could be made. We have had countless hours of global conversation and dialogue. We have more than 70% of the world's central banks thinking about CBDC. We have certain countries advancing leaps and bounds over others in terms of the design principles. And I would argue that we're in nothing short of a standards war, potentially on the future of money and the future of payment networks. And so in that vein, of course, we, we're not blind to the fact that this is a competitive ecosystem, but we're very, very deeply focused to our core priorities. Get it right over get it fast. Ensure that at the end, the network performs the functions it has to perform at the technological, organizational, and regulatory levels. And then thereafter, over a long period of time, you'll, you'll catalyze an ecosystem around it. Much like you have seen with mobile money, much like you have seen with the ability to develop app stores and have communities and ecosystems, we're very deeply committed to that. And what unites all of the members in the project is that common cause and that commitment to that, that type of mission. And then along the way, many projects will come and go. We argue that not all stable coins are created equal, but we also argue, as Christian just pointed out, that a stable coin construct perhaps is a bridge to public sector innovation and digitizing their own currencies. When that ever occurs, I think the world will be a better place for the fact that a network like this exists that can support last mile delivery and can support users having more access to uh, a lot of the basics we may take for granted. Yeah, and on that, just to add a few thoughts, I think it, it's important for there to be competition even across networks and across projects. So, you know, that will make Libra a better project. So I think it's, it's great to see that there's a number of uh, initiatives from public, private, to all sort of other 
engagements and we can all learn from each other in terms of like how to design you know the future of financial inclusion and financial services great well thank you all for coming on and giving us a little bit of an introduction to libra and payments seems like it's an ecosystem that's developing and there's no turning back really so you might as well start catching up and keeping an eye on on this sector so thank you thank you all so much thank you sarah thank you scott thank you